You may be seated. I need a, a couple of volunteers to uh, hand out some sheets, study sheets. And uh, here, thanks. Well, people, uh, people of the Church of Ephesus, uh, I have good news for you. We have received from one of our brothers a letter from the Apostle Paul. And uh, it, we are going to read that letter tonight from the Apostle. You may, have, you may remember Paul. He actually spent well over a year, two years here in Ephesus, helping our church and uh, planting our church. You may remember that he actually was involved in a riot in Ephesus when uh, he was speaking against idol worship. And the people of Ephesus responded with, great, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And they started a riot, and Paul was arrested right here in Ephesus. You remember that? Well, we have tried to keep track of the Apostle Paul, and he went to Jerusalem, and he was arrested in Jerusalem, and he was put on trial, and he was then sent to Caesarea, and he was put on trial there and kept in Caesarea for two years. And now we hear that he is in Rome and has traveled to Rome under guard, and he writes to us, and we have his letter tonight. Just looking at our uh, little sheet, uh, looking at the dates, Paul's imprisonment was about 60 to 62 A.D., his first imprisonment. And he had appealed to Caesar during his trial in Caesarea, and so he had to go to Rome. This is in uh, the conclusion of the book of Acts. You can read that whole story in the last few chapters of the book of Acts. He was held in Rome for about two years. Well, obviously, from 60 to 62 AD. He lived in a house. He was able to have people visit him. He was guarded by members of the Praetorian Guard. He actually makes a, a reference in one of his letters, which we will read at some point, that some of Caesar's guards have become believers and even members of Caesar's own household. We think he's actually referring to some of these Praetorian guards who watched over him. He was in a situation we would call today under house arrest. Um, he, uh, he was able to have visitors, though. He was released about 62 A.D. and then rearrested about four years later in 66 A.D. And this is when he writes 2 Timothy, his second uh, imprisonment. He wrote 2 Timothy. And uh, 2 Timothy, he realizes that he is about to be executed. He uses the term, I am about to be offered up or poured out like a drink offering. And uh, uh, indeed, he was. Um. Have, have any of you ever been to the city of Rome? Have you ever visited Rome? Well, they if you go to Rome, they have a, a prison. It's called the Mamertine Prison, and it's near the banks of the Tiber River. They say this is probably the spot where Paul was held during this second imprisonment. It's not a nice place. It's not a nice place. When you were delivered to this prison, you were not coming out. Well, you were coming out, but not alive. In fact, when you died, the prison had kind of a back gate, back door. The guards would take the dead body and simply throw it out the back into the Tiber River. 
River. Paul was executed, beheaded, under the rule of Nero, the Emperor Nero. Paul mentions in the book of Romans that he has a plan to possibly go to Spain. He wants to go to Spain. Some people believe that in this period between the first and second imprisonment of, of Paul, that he was able to go to Spain. But we have no record of it. It's not in the book of Acts. We have no uh, official written record of a trip to Spain. Uh, but some people believe that he, was, he, he did, uh, in fact, bring the gospel to Spain. We can't prove that one way or the other. When we read the book of Ephesians, of course, Ephesians chapter 1 is one of our great passages on predestination, election, and, and so forth. And many people, when, we, when they read that, think that that's really the main theme of the book of, of Ephesians. But as you keep reading, you realize that's actually a subordinate theme. The main theme of the book of Ephesians is this great mystery that Paul writes about. He is a steward of this mystery. The mystery is that the Gentiles are also to be called and brought into the kingdom of God. And so he writes about the unity of the church in Christ, the Jew and the Gentile brought together, the middle wall of partition being broken down. Guess who's coming to dinner? The Gentiles. <laughs> and, uh, and he writes about that. That is the mystery, and it is something that was... Uh, greatly on the mind of the Apostle Paul and reflected glory back to God. The God of grace is not confined to one people. The God's, God's grace extends to all the nations of the earth. Well, let's read uh, Ephesians, six chapters. It's not going to take us too long, and then we'll talk about Philemon. Or if I were British, I would say Philemon. Tomato, tomato. Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit 
who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you once who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. 
For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though, I am the very least of all the saints this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, 
When he ascended on high, he led host, a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ." so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer work as walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become a callous, have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption." Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another in God, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. 
for you may be sure of this, that anyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband." Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ not by the way of eye service as people-pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven." 
and that there is no partiality with him. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose." that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Not a long letter, but packed, isn't it? Packed with truth, packed with life-changing truth. So we know also from the end here that Tychicus was the one who brought this letter to us this evening, members of the Church of Ephesus. You see how he starts with the sovereign grace of God and that whole first chapter, but then he segues into the unity of the church. He's writing to a church that is largely Gentile, largely Gentile, uh, but he shares with them how those Gentiles, notice how he describes them initially. You were strangers, you were foreigners, you were aliens to the promises of the covenant. But now you've been brought near. When he refers back to the uh, Gentiles and he says, do not live as the Gentiles live as you used to live, uh, and so forth, he talks about those Gentiles still being aliens and strangers and and. Uh, outside of the blessings of God, God's promise. But they have these Gentiles have been brought in. Whenever I read these passages about the Gentiles being brought into the church, I remember I'm a Gentile. And the only reason you and I are here tonight is because of this mystery that God had from the very beginning determined to work for a while through a specific family of people, but eventually to broaden his grace out to the whole world, to bring in every, every language, every family, every 
nation and tribe. And that, of course, is the picture that we find in the book of Revelation around the throne. Glory is praise to the Lamb, because by your blood you have ransomed people from every nation, every tribe, every language on the face of the earth. You and I are here tonight because of that eternal purpose of God to do just that. As Paul repeats several times in the first parts of the letter, to the praise of the glory of his grace. To the praise of the glory of his grace. I have to tell you, this is a, a, even though it's not a long letter, it's something of a difficult letter to read. And you may have noticed Paul has run on sentences. If he were, it, Paul needed an editor, but he had a, the Holy Spirit. So we'll, we'll let the Holy Spirit dictate to Paul or tell Paul how he should write his letter. But uh, grammatically, this letter is, is chaos. And it's full of commas and, and everything else. And, and you may have noticed in the first and second chapters particularly, there are these long run-on sentences that just pile. There's a purpose for that, by the way. There's actually a purpose for that. Because as you read these sentences where just Paul piles phrase upon phrase upon phrase upon phrase, you get caught up in the tempo of his heart you get caught up in the fact that grace piles on grace and piles on grace. And his description of God's work in Christ mirrors that grammatically in the, in the tempo, in the form in which he writes. I think that's a further evidence of, of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, even in what formally would be called really bad grammar. There's a point. There's a purpose there. Do you have any questions of what we on what we just read? We'll take a few questions before we move on to Philemon. Yeah. Well, yes, but that's the whole that's the whole point of uh, that's the the point of the letter. There is no favoritism in the context of how he treats uh, in in basically how we as human beings appear before him. He does not favor the slave over the master, and he does not favor the master over the slave. But as we will see in Philemon, in the context of redemption, there is no favoritism and there is no, there is no distinction to be made. Uh, his point is, is specifically in, in regard to a person's station in life. That's an old phrase, an old way of describing, uh, you know, whether you're a, a superior, an inferior, or, a, or an equal, your station in life. Uh, those things have to do with our earthly relations. But God is not a respecter of persons. God does not make that distinction when we are before him. And particularly in the, in the realm of salvation, he treats all, uh, all his elect, certainly. And remember, this is written to a church. Context is always important. The context is always important. Uh, so you, you have to maintain the context in which Paul is writing and his purpose in writing. Uh, one, of the, one of the basic rules I have, 
just like I had three rules for young pastors, young preachers that I, I told you a few year, uh, weeks ago. Uh, rule number one, preach the word. Rule number two, preach the word. Rule number three, when not preaching the word, find more opportunities to preach the word. I have three rules. I have rules for, for interpreting the Bible. Context, context, context. If you were a real estate agent, you would say location, 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 right? Context, context, context. And there are multiple different contexts that we have to be aware of and when we come to the Word, okay? Do you notice when—where did Paul segue into uh, from—and Paul has this, this pattern that is in many of his letters, uh, where he, he has, in the beginning of the letter, he has a doctrinal portion, and then somewhere along the line he shifts into his practical application— and it's actually, in this case, very clearly a practical application of the, of the doctrines that he's been uh, teaching in the first part. Where does that transition take place? Can you find it? There's actually a very big clue. What? Well, the, the, that is, yeah, it's at the beginning of chapter 4. Notice he closes chapter, what is our chapter 3. Paul didn't write in chapters and verses. But at the close of our chapter 3, he closes with a benediction and a doxology. That's the closing of the doctrinal section. And then in chapter 4, he begins the practical application. And you notice, especially in the beginning of this practical sec section, his concern is to maintain the unity of the church. He's applying the theology of the first half in the second half. The theology of the first half is, is reflecting the sovereignty of God, the, the mystery of God, the purpose of God in bringing the Gentiles into one body, the Jews and Gentiles chosen in Christ, becoming one body. And then as he goes into the practical application, he's emphasizing the things that maintain unity, one Lord, one faith, one baptism growing up in Christ and not being tossed around by every wind of doctrine, which of course brings disunity and strife into the church. Have you ever noticed that some guy, guys get up and they have, their, they have this, you know, this new insight about God, and God never, never shared this, but he appeared to me in a vision the other night, and he shared this with me, and I'm now going to share this with you. And they launch off into some strange teaching well, first of all, that strange teaching is divisive. It undermines the unity of the church. But have you ever noticed that thousands of people will flock to them? And those who teach the truth, well, we struggle along, and, and we survive, and we persevere, but rarely do we have huge, huge followings. Maybe that's for the better. Huge followings tend to do strange things to a man's ego. Uh, Lord is wise in his ways. But anyway, even that, that uh, section on the gifts, uh, Christ has given gifts to men, and he lists particular gifts that he has given to the church. Uh, they are the, the officers of the church, the teachers and, and shepherds and so forth. Um, they are there to help the church mature, and as it matures, 
it grows in its unity. It grows in its unity. So, any other questions? And we're going to go on to read Philemon in a minute. Yeah, in the back. Um, well, again, go back uh, a couple of verses because the, it's, it's actually a part of Paul's prayer request for the Ephesian people. So back in verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Notice how he's talking here about Jews and Gentiles. Every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, the full dimensions, the full dimension of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And I think that's a reflection of our understanding that in the process of our sanctification, our growth in grace. There's, a, there's an end point. There's a goal in mind. Uh, Paul reflects that in, in you know, one of our favorite passages in Romans 8, right? All things working together for good. Well, context, what's the good? The good is that we are conformed to the image of Christ. We become like Christ. Now, do we become divine? And I think this is where some people go off track, that oh, you're filled with the fullness of God. Do you become a little God? Well, there's a church. Well, I hesitate. I, I, I call it a church, but it's not. There's that building over there with the angel Marana on the top and blowing a trumpet and so forth. I mean, they teach that, they would teach in this passage that that's, we're all going to be little gods. We're all going to be filled with, well, certain, certain of us will be, not everyone but certain will become little gods. We will become God. Uh, no, we become godly. We are filled with the fullness. As God is righteous, we will be righteous. As God is holy, we will be holy. As God is wise, we will be wise. As God is good, we will be good. We are uh, being recreated in the image of God through Christ. And so I think that's where that's where this is is headed. Not, uh, you know, and and people in different periods of church history have taken it in a, I think in a in a very wrong, hyper literal way in the in the sense that we become God, that we somehow uh, uh, become divine in ourselves as a result of Christ's work, but no. We don't become God, we become godly, which, of course, is a, is a goal for us. Quick, any more? Tim? Yeah. Okay, uh, I'll read the passage. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with, with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Is all anger sinful? Did Jesus ever get angry? Jesus became furious. 
But notice what he did. He channeled that anger in a righteous way. He cleansed the temple. He did not let the anger control him to do evil. He controlled the anger and directed it toward a good end. He did not let the anger fester in his heart. He resolved the provocation of the anger. And this is, again, I think what Scripture says. Paul is actually quoting from, a, from an Old Testament passage. Uh, the wisdom says, yeah, if we recognize the reality of anger, well, be, first of all, let's be sure that you're getting angry, if you're angry, over something worth getting angry over. Very often our anger flares up when we are personally offended at something. Somebody says something or does something that offends me. I don't feel like I'm being properly respected. Okay, let that go. Don't let that. Well, if you need to talk to the person, okay, talk to the person. That's actually channeling that emotional response of anger in a better way. Talk to that person. And actually, Jesus teaches that, doesn't he? The whole point is to resolve it. Do not let the ang and do not let the sun go down on your anger. Isolate the provocation, resolve it. Do so in a godly way. And then leave it. Anger that is harbored in the heart is a cancer to the soul. Don't keep mulling it over. Don't keep bringing it up. Love has a short memory in that respect. So my getting... Yes, okay, good. <laughs> good. Okay, let's turn to Philemon for a, a minute. It's much shorter. There's a young man named Onesimus who was a runaway slave. When he ran away from his master, he was not a Christian, but somehow in God's providence, he found his way to Rome. And in Rome, he found his way to this house that the Apostle Paul was renting, where he was being held under house arrest. And in God's providence, he heard Paul teaching about the gospel and about Jesus Christ. Remember, in, in, in uh, Ephesians, toward the end, Paul says, pray for me that I can have an opportunity to speak clearly about the gospel. Well, Apparently, with regard to Onesimus, God answered that prayer, and the gospel came through to this runaway slave with power, and he believed. But now there's a problem. He's a runaway slave. And Paul believes that he has to send him back to Philemon, who also is a believer who also came to know the gospel through Paul. Paul seems to be the, the nexus here of these intersecting lives, uh, Paul and, and Jesus. <laughs> uh, this, this builds on what we were saying this morning, and I, I want you, as I read this, to, to listen carefully to the way Paul pleads for Onesimus and the way that Paul subtly applies the gospel to this situation. And see how Paul is planting seeds that need to grow and mature and flower and give us insight into our relationships with each other 
Paul's letter to Philemon. Paul, prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. By the way, that, doesn't that tell you something? He had a church in Philemon's house. And we don't know if some of these, uh, some of these people are related to Philemon or uh, just uh, believers in the, in the same town where Philemon lives. Uh, but they gathered at his house at church for as their church. Well, they were the church. The house was the meeting place. Well, let me start over. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but by your own accord." For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. What a powerful 
and beautiful letter. Notice how Paul approaches this rather delicate issue with respect and affection and statements of appreciation for Philemon's service and his fellowship in the gospel. Prayers for Philemon to have a powerful witness as he shares his testimony about Jesus Christ. Then he gets to the heart of it. Here's why I'm writing you. Now about Onesimus. By the way, the whole, that parenthetical statement there about being useless and useful, that's actually a play on the name Onesimus. I'll let you look it up in a Greek dictionary. <laughs> how, does the, how does the gospel influence, how is the gospel supposed to influence Philemon's relationship with Onesimus? How is it? Think of some specific things that Paul writes here. Forgiveness. And if he has taken anything from you, charge that to my account. And then he goes on. I'm, I'm writing this myself. I will promise to repay it. Yeah. Receive him back, not just as a bondservant, but what? As a brother. Notice how he appeals. He also appeals to God's sovereign providence. Maybe this is why Onesimus ran away. Not excusing his running away, but understanding that even in doing something wrong, God has a higher purpose so that you might receive him back as a brother for eternity. Now, when we talk about slavery we're in this context, again, in this letter, it's within the church, within the church. And certainly Paul is laying the foundations for within the church for this institution of slavery to to really eventually be put on the shelf. And people just, you know, it's inconsistent. It's just inconsistent with who we are in Christ to continue this. I, I, think, I think Paul, I'm fully persuaded that Paul is planting the seeds that will subtly, subtly undermine this institution of slavery in the church, particularly, as... The Christian church is salt and light in the world. That influence may indeed permeate into the world. And, and in fact, it had. In the British Empire, you had Wilber, Wilberforce who uh, campaigned against slavery and ultimately uh, won a vote of parliament outlawing the sale of slaves in the British Empire. What do you mean? Uh, go ahead. Who had... Yeah, uh, and, uh, you know, next time we'll read from Philippians, where he says, let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who gave him, you know, who laid aside the glory that he had with the Father and took on the form of a servant and so forth. So there, there is that, that application from Christ here. Now, let me ask you a question. What do you make of Paul's appeal it's it's kind of an emotional an appeal based on motion there's fact behind it but it is kind of an emotional appeal some might even say it's a bit manipulative when paul says by the way i remind you that you owe me 
you owe me yourself. Why? Because I was God's instrument to bring the gospel to you. What do you think of that? Yeah. Yeah. So here you have Paul saying, God used me in your life to bring you salvation. He used me in Onesimus' life to bring salvation to him, to bring the message of salvation to him. I remind you that I was the instrument God used, and now I'm making this appeal to you. It's not really manipulative. It is founded on fact. There is fact. It's just historical truth in in their relationship. But sometimes we, you know, parents can do this with children. Don't you remember all the nights I stayed up with you when you were sick and couldn't sleep? Right? Why are you giving me such a hard time now? We, I mean, we, we do use that, that line of argument with, with uh, each other. Um, I saw a hand in the back. Toward, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So he's kind of pulling all the stops out in his appeal. Uh, but yes, and, and by the way, you just, you just raised up the next question I was going to pose to you. Did you notice how he says, I could command you to do this, but, but I'm going to appeal to you so that your obedience is, well, I, I know we're in a Reformed church, but it's of free will. <laughs> Tomatoes, tomatoes, rotten lettuce, all coming right of it. Well, no, really, obedience freely given. Uh, and that's, that's an important part. By the way, that's how we are, that's how we should obey. Not from compulsion. This is why in the Heidelberg, the exposition of the Ten Commandments comes in that section on show, giving thanks, gratitude. That should be one of the chief elements of the Christian life is gratitude toward God. And this is what this is one of the prime motivators for Christians. Gratitude and love, I think, are biblically the two prime motivators for, for believers. Gratitude and love. And Paul is appealing to gratitude so that he doesn't have to use the heavy hand of his authority as an apostle. I command you to do this. But no, demonstrate the grace of God in your heart. I've voluntarily taking my plea seriously. I'm not going to use the heavy hand of authority. I'm going to use the gentle persuasion of brotherhood and grace and love. And oh, by the way, you owe me. <laughs> well, I, I think wisdom has to be applied. I don't think this is a, a blanket justification to always use that kind of an approach. Um, there has to be a solid relationship built to use that kind of an approach, I think. It doesn't just come out of thin air. Um, there has to be a, a very strong relationship to, to kind of make that appeal. You, you owe me your own life, by the way. Oh, yeah, I do. It, it also requires, a, it also calls out humility to admit, yeah, I... You were the one that God used to bring me Christ. Pride is another killer, isn't it? Pride is a killer. Pride runs contrary to this whole theme of unity in, in Ephesians. 
Pride hardens hearts. Pride makes us self-centered. How much, how much suffering goes on in the human heart in our relationships? Well, it does keep Tim in business, but how, <laughs> how much suffering is because we are proud and selfish, and we don't we we look at everything through the lens of what it means to me, and we become distorted. We should primarily look at everything through the lens of, what does this mean to God? How does this glorify God? How is this showing gratitude to Christ? Is this in accordance with 1 Corinthians 13, the definition of love? It's not about me, not even about you. Christ. Any other questions? Yeah, Matt. <laughs> well, but he, notice later on in the letter, he says, I, I trust I'm going to be released to you soon. I'm going to prepare a room for me, get, get a room ready, make the beds up, you know, because uh, <laughs> in a way, yeah, but I think, I think Paul, Paul is sincere, uh, in making this offer, and he and he stresses it by saying, "I'm I'm I'm I basically am taking an oath before God to to repay the debt if there is a debt." Um, yeah. At the same time, I can't imagine Philemon getting out his adding machine and totaling up all the all the stuff that he lost because Philemon ran away or uh, Onesimus ran away. Uh, again. All these relationships, and here's where we learn, these relationships are being sautéed in the rich, buttery sauce of grace. Understand that? Let our relationships be that way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this evening. We thank you for what we can learn from these two letters, short letters and yet full of truth and full of godly instruction. They challenge our minds, and yet they are simple enough for a child to understand. We pray, Father, that you would teach us these things. Let us meditate on them. Let us hide your word in our heart. And let, our, let the grace that you have given to us permeate all aspects of our lives. Let us forgive even as we have been forgiven. Let us love as we have been loved. Let us show mercy as we have been shown mercy. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.